Welcome to the School of the Word. Now, for those of you who are of great courage, there are a lot of space up front. Seriously, we'd ask if you all could move up because them who are coming in late will be embarrassed if they have to come up front. And so not wanting to embarrass anyone, I'm not that type of a person, never wanting to call anyone out or down, but Fargo and uh, Lee and Pat and, and a bunch of y'all, y'all move up front if you can. Some of y'all who are younger and more vigorous, there's a whole lot of ta- there's tables with these two ladies, lovely ladies up front. There are three lovely ladies who are sitting here. There's almost no one at this table. Those two guys over there, you may not want to sit with them, but try it. It's not Pat's fault. He was born that way. So y'all come on up. <laughs> James will tell you about that. So y'all come on down. Let me encourage you to come this way. I put in new dentures so I don't spit as much. Next week, you're sitting up front. Okay, uh, Todd, are we ready? Let's start. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Welcome to what I call the greatest hour of glory upon the earth, even though it's 45 minutes. Thank you for being here. Thank you for honoring God's purpose in saving us. And that is this. God's purpose didn't end and was not culminated in our forgiveness and our salvation. That was his method to bring us into a relationship with him in order to conform us to the image of his son. So God's purpose initiating at the cross with our forgiveness of being applied to us by the Holy Spirit when we were born again finds his great fulfillment in us as he moves us along in this life through various ways, changing us, conforming us, transforming us into the image of his son. That's what the Christian life is about, that we may on that day be able to be heard from God. You have been conformed to my son because you allowed me to work in your life that great work of sanctification. And so we're in the middle of this booklet called You Can Change. This is the entire purpose of it, is to allow us and show us, teach us how the Word of God in our lives and how all the various issues of life can come together whether those issues be lies and temptations, whether they be the work of the Holy Spirit, all of it comes together and is confined in us, directed toward us, rather, for the purpose of God to use all of it for our sanctification, every bit of it. So thank you for being here. Thank you for continuing to study the book and apply it to your lives. This morning, we're in chapter 6. So we'll be doing chapter 6 this morning, and then next week we'll do chapters 7 and 8. Last week I told you it would be 6 and 7. I lied. It will be 7 and 8 next week. Bill Treby will discuss this with me, I know, later. I'm picking up Bill's habits. I am afraid of that, but I apologize for that. Let's start with prayer. Father, thank you so much. 
Father, what a joy it is. Father, not only to study your word, but be changed by your word. But Father, we know whether our study is effective as we experience Holy Spirit empowered, led, motivated change. So, Father, we thank you. Father, we approach your word for this great purpose. The joy that you have in taking us, your children, and growing us up. Father, the same joy that we as parents and grandparents experience when our own children are doing well and are growing and developing and maturing. Father, how pleased we are with that. Father, isn't this just a sampling of how you must feel about us? And so, Father, we continue this. We passionately pursue this for your pleasure. Father, because we know as we pursue your purposes, you're not only going to be pleased, but we are going to experience your very joy and pleasure in us, which is our most powerful motivation. So, Father, this morning as we continue to pray that everyone who is involved with this process, especially as we take it through this book, Father, that you'll be pouring out your trans transformational work in us by your spirit and be giving us the blessing of your pleasure so father we know that you are with us this morning you have promised to be with us we just ask that you do a greater work every day more and more every day as we await that great day when we shall stand before the throne and we shall say as others have said home at last we're home at last and forever shall we be with the Lord thank you for this in Jesus name amen well as we continue to progress through the book chapter 6 begins to deal with the uh, with the issue of the idolatry of sin and sin's idolatry essentially being this wanting something or someone either other than God or wanting something or someone with the same passion that we want God. Anything is idolatry that comes to the same level as our desiring God. If anything is on even the same level, it's idolatry. God is the person whom we want and the issue whom we want, we must want the very most over everything else in our life. And that is the process that God is taking us through day by day as he is transforming us, transforming our inner desires so that we will see and want him more than we see and want anything or anyone else in this life, no matter who that other person may be or no matter what that other thing may be, no matter what tantalizing lie it may say, God wants us to be the people who will say, my God, first, second, third, fourth, etc., etc. 
Not my God first and something second, but God being the totality of all that we want and need in life. Everything else being sublimated to that and within that context as God allows us to experience other things in life. And so on pages 99 to 106, I've broken the chapter down into two sections. 99 to 106 as the problem and then the solution will be from 106 to the rest of the chapter. I think it ends about chapter, uh, page 111, somewhere around there. But let's open our books to page 100. And on page 100, Chester reminds us that sin is idolatry, something or someone that replaces God. So listen to what he says. Our idols, do you see where I am on page 106 in the indented section? Our idols are those things which we count on to give our lives meaning. Now think about it. What in our life gives us meaning? Satisfaction. Contentment. What is my life about? Is there anything in my life which if I lost it or could not gain it, do I feel different about life? So an idol is anything that we count on to give our lives meaning. There are things of which we say, I need this to make me happy. Or if I don't have this, my life is worthless and meaningless. The New Testament way of talking about idolatry is sinful desires. Literally, it is lusts of the flesh. Lust here is not just sexual desire, but all sinful desire. And flesh is not talking about our bodies, but about our sinful natures, the bias towards sin that we have from birth, which every one of us has from birth. And so you see, why do we sin? Now, how many of us will admit, I sin on a regular basis? Can anyone raise your hand to say that? I sin on a regular basis. Now, wives, look at your husbands. Their hands are raised. Husbands, look at your wives. Every one of us sin on a regular basis. Why? Because we live in bodies which are corrupted by sin. Why do we sin? I don't know why I sin. Yes, you do know why you sin. We sin because we like it. We want to. You know, I have never been tempted to put a roach in my mouth. It's, it's not a temptation, Charlie. You know, that it is not something I'm dealing with and sweating over and trying to say, Lord, do you want me to eat roaches or not? It's just not a temptation. But there may be another category that, wow, this is an entirely different kind of a thing. And so what's the difference? You see, the difference is this. This is why I sin. And this is why I don't sin. To eat a roach is no pleasure. But to maybe eat something that is not good for me, to think something that is not wise, to go somewhere where I shouldn't, etc. The reason I do what I do in the category of sin is pleasure. 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 Now, you see, pleasure is not the problem. I do it for pleasure, but pleasure in and of itself is not my problem. We were created by God to need. Let me refer that word to you again, reference that word to you one more time. We were created by God to need to experience pleasure. You see, some way or some another, Christianity has taken on 
a context in many views that pleasure should not be what we have. And yet Christianity is the religion of the greatest pleasure anybody can have. The meaning of one of the most deep, deepest needs in our lives is pleasure. We were created to need pleasure, but the pleasure was to be found in God. As we experience what pleasure? Pleasure that we are to experience is God's very pleasure that he has within himself about himself. That's the pleasure we are to experience. The pleasure that God has within himself about himself. The joy that God has within himself about himself. The satisfaction and the contentment and the love that God has within himself about himself within the context of the community of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within the context of that community of God, there is perfect, pure, and continual, eternal pleasure in the relationships that exist within God. And that is what God wants us to experience in order for us to be the people who image God. If we are going to be the images of God in Genesis 1.26, we must be those people who are experiencing the very pleasure of God himself in our own lives so that we can be a display to others, not of the pleasure that I have, but the pleasure that God has given me to experience and convey the pleasure that he has within himself. So as others see the pleasure that I'm experiencing, the joy that I have, the contentment, the uh, satisfaction, the meaning in life, the love, etc., etc., they can see it in me and know this is not normal and natural for a human being to experience this. This is a revelation of the heart of God. Pleasure. So let's change our understanding of what is going on in my life and in your life. But you see, the problem is that sin has caused us to seek pleasure in something other than God. We now, because of sin, sin now causes us and encourages us and tempts us to look for pleasure in ourselves and for myself. Something of and about me is now the source of my pleasure. Sin says that pleasure is something of or about me. How many of you can identify that? That when we sin, it's something of or about me, some kind of way. I'm angry because I can't have something of or about me. I'm jealous because I lust because I whatever, because something of and about me. And so pleasure isn't the problem. It's misplaced pleasure. That's the difficulty. That's what sin has done. So now the pleasure of sin is in competition with our pleasure in God. Now, by the way, there is a wonderful book. This is not in your notes. There's a wonderful book by John Piper. Just thought of it. It's about this big. It's about 80 pages, and it's called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. I have never read a book, as I can remember, written by a human being, other than the Bible, obviously, that contains so much in so little of space. The Dangerous Duty of Delight. I encourage you to get it because it is the very fulcrum of where sin grabs us 
and where God will break that power of sin in my life and in your life. The dangerous duty of delight. It's about 80, 85 pages long. It'll take you just a few minutes to read, but once you begin to go through it, it's going to slow you down because he's going to have so much in there, page by page and sentence by sentence, that you are going to have a feast on every single page of that. But please get it and read it. You see, Moses understood this competition and this pleasure principle. In Hebrews eleven twenty six, remember, Moses considered, you remember when he was in Egypt and he was a Pharaoh's daughter, I mean, a son of Pharaoh's daughter. Again, you saw the movie, you know all about it. And Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures, the pleasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking for the reward. What was his reward? I'm going to get something out of this is my reward. And that is exactly correct. We are to look to get something out of this. And the thing that we're to get out of this is the very pleasure of God that he has over our lives as we submit to him. How many of you mamas and daddies and and grandparents know that it is a pleasure and a joy to us when our children joyfully obey us? How many of you know that? How many of you experience that? See, that's God's experience of us. About half of you didn't raise your hands. And you might want to ask, why is it that your children are not doing this? Is there something in you, not only in the children, but maybe there's something in you? The pleasure of God over us, his children. Oh, there's no greater pleasure than to see your children, your grandchildren growing up and developing and doing well. And yet there's no greater heartache when they're not. Do you feel the pulse of God about us in those statements and in those activities? The pulse of God. See, Moses knew that the pleasure of God's presence was greater reward than the fleeting pleasures of sin. He knew this. This is exactly what Chester tells us at the bottom of page 102. At the bottom of page 102, here's what he says in this little statement in beginning the last paragraph. Desire is at the helm of our lives. Desire has the helm, the wheel of the ship, desire does. And this ship of our lives is going to go in the direction that the helmsman or the desire tells us. When I desire something, brother, I'm going in that direction unless I say no to it. And when you desire something, you are going in that direction unless you say no to it. And as a consequence, we often do what we don't want to do because our wanting to do good is not strong enough. How many of you can commiserate with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 19? I do what I don't want to do. Well, we're doing what we want to do, but we're not doing the good that we want to do because we want to do the sin that we more want to do than the good. Does this ring your bell? Does this talk to you? Are you listening? Are you hearing? Is it connecting with you? I never sin because I don't want to. I sin because I want to sin more than I want to please God. That's the essence of my rebellion, of my idolatry. I simply want this thing for me more than I want God to have pleasure over my obedience. And God is just going to have to take a back seat. You say, oh man, I would never say that. You're saying it. It's being broadcast by your attitude, by my desires, by all these things that we do. We're telling God, get to the rear of the bus. I got something better going than I got you. 
Oh, we would never say that outright. Ooh, we're afraid of God. I think God would actually rather us to say it and not do it than to not say it and do it. So how can we break free from this stranglehold of our sin? How can we break free? Let's look at Romans chapter 8. And Chester quotes these verses in his book. You may be already in the book. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. How can we break loose? How do we get out from underneath the bondage to sinful, self-centered pleasure? How can we do it? Listen carefully. Because this is not a self-determination activity. If it's a self-driven, self-determination, self-preservation activity, we are still serving the pleasure of self. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, the pleasures of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Look at verses 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That means when we set our hearts and our minds on the things of the flesh or we try to change ourselves or change one another according to the flesh, according to the mandates and the dictates and the, and the thoughts and the desires of our own attitudes and opinions, we are still in the flesh and it's sin. You, however, are not in the flesh, but we are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. For anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, Paul says every single believer has the Holy Spirit and every one of us has the Spirit empowerment and presence of God in our lives to experience and want and begin to live according to that which pleases him so that we can experience the pleasure and the joy and the contentment and the meaning of that God desires to give to us from himself. So what is the solution? Well, the solution has already been given in these verses. But in pages 106 to 114, Chester reminds us that the solution is mortifying sin by the Spirit. Let's turn to 106 as we see what he's talking about. Mortifying sin by the Spirit. Now, how many of you have actually, that's the current word for you. You know that word, mortification. How many of you, that's really kind of a new word. It's okay. It's kind of a new word. Anybody in here? Mortification. If I said this morning we're going to talk about mortification, how many of you immediately would know what I'm, not would know, would not know what I'm talking about? How, How many of you? I think probably several. To mortify means to do what? To kill. To kill. To put to death. So here's what Chester says in the middle of the chapter, on um, the page 106, in that middle section. Sin arises because we desire something more than God. You see, this, repeating what he said before, it's a transitional comment to get us into the next paragraph. Overcoming sin begins by reversing this process. What process? Reversing the issue of desiring something more than God. We sin because we want pleasure in sin more than we want pleasure in God. We, we, this is reversed by, this is uh, reversed or overcome rather by reversing this process that we desire God more than we desire anything else. 
that we begin to find out and experience and begin to walk in pleasures of God. Sin is fundamentally an orientation towards self. (coughs) We won't let God be God in our lives. We run our lives our way without him. Self is at the center of the picture. Repentance is reorienting ourselves toward God. Repentance is reorienting our desires toward God and the pleasure that God has and the pleasure we receive from him. That's what repentance is. It's putting God at the center. What matters most is no longer our pleasure or success or even our problems, but God's glory. And you see, God's glory is an expression of his pleasure. Repentance is God's grace gift to us so that we can begin to experience a change of heart in our minds about sin, turning our affections from sin to God. How do we change? How do we break the pattern and the grip of sin's pleasure over my life? See, the problem with sin is its pleasure. And I must and you must come to grips with this, and we must, by the Spirit, begin to break the grip of sin's pleasure in my life. Not that sin won't give me pleasure, but that I will not submit to sin's pleasure, which produces death, but I will overcome temptations because I want something greater than the pleasure of sin, which is boom, 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 and it's over, and now I'm dead, or I feel miserable, or I feel condemned, I feel guilty. Because all of us know how we feel after we sin, don't we know? Is it pleasurable after sin produces death? It's a terrible feeling. And thank God it's a terrible feeling. You see, as repentance of sin was necessary in our salvation, we had to repent of sin to receive Christ. We had to say no to sin and turn to Christ. We had to turn away from sin, turning to Christ. It's a work that necessitates both activities, turning away to turn to. You can't turn to without turning away. And when you turn away, you have to turn to. So this same activity is necessary in our lives as a continuing experience toward godliness. We have to regularly repent of sin. What does it mean? We have to regularly reconsider why I am am sinning. And by God's grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we have to have a change of mind and heart and desire for sin. See, I never ask God, stop me from sinning. I never do that. I ask God to give me a pleasure, a meaning, a contentment that overcomes the power of sin's pleasure. I don't ask God to stop me from sinning. He's not going to do that. He's already done everything to stop me from sinning. But I ask by the power of the Spirit to change my wanting. Because the root is down there in the ground. The fruit is just the sin on the tree. I'm not asking God to be a leaf cutter. I'm asking God to be a root digger upper. (laughs) Daniel Ford over there knows all about that kind of stuff. You see, repentance is a lifelong process that recognizes temptation and says, what to sin? What to sin? No. No. Now, you see, I did not say no the way I wanted to say no. Because if I say no the way I want to, the other day, 
I won't give you the details, and my wife won't ask me for the details. No, seriously, she won't. The other day, the Lord showed me, you're walking in some compromise here. And it persisted. I went somewhere, and I raised my voice, not like I do in here. I muffle myself in here. I raise my voice, and with as much power of the Holy Spirit that I could muster, I yell out, no! And I told Satan, you cannot overcome a Holy Spirit-empowered no! Because you see, the no was empowered by and in motivated by a desire to experience the pleasure and the joy of God's presence more than the corrupting activity of sin. Sin is a damnable thing in our lives. And I want no part of it in me. And we want no part of it in this church. On page 108, the process is called mortification, putting to death the deeds of the sin, saying no to sin, resisting sin. Y'all come on down here. Tony, you and John, y'all come all the way up front. Come all the way up front, young people. You see, we don't want them, this is why I ask y'all to sit up front so they don't have to be embarrassed by coming in late. Aren't you glad Tony and John are here? You see, this is called mortification, putting to death the deeds of the sin. Wait, you just did something I didn't see. Now, thems of you who are listening by tape, this is why you need to be in this class. You're missing a lot of stuff by not being in here, by sleeping late and getting a CD. Be here next week. <laughs> you see, the problem with so many of us is that we have fallen for Satan's lies. Now, think about it. Think about your own personal experience. This is what Satan says. You will never be able to overcome that particular temptation or you'll never experience godly change. You'll never do it. And you know why he gets away with that lie? Because before we were saved, we couldn't overcome. We couldn't experience godly change. I mean, some of you, if you're saved later in life, have years and years of the lie operating effectively as a truth in you when you were unregenerated. And you couldn't, and you tried, and you failed, and you tried, and you failed. And then when you come into Christ, when you're born again, all of a sudden you're prepared to now live for the glory of God, and all of a sudden you come in, you fall down, you fall down, you fall down, you fall down, and you say, yeah, this thing doesn't work. At least I'm forgiven because you haven't understood what God has done in our lives at the cross and in me to apply that power, and you're still falling for the same lie. You will never change. You were born that way. Your mama was like that and all of that, and you're going to be like that until you're dead. Don't believe the lie. There's not a thing or an activity of sin in my life and in your life that God cannot and will not change completely by his own power if we will cooperate with him. Amen? It's not a sin that works in my life that 
God won't deal with. So let's change our attitudes and stop believing the lie. Oh, I was just born this way. I have a bad mouth. Well, let God clean it up. Let God clean up those thoughts. Let God clean up those attitudes. Because he can and he will by his grace. You see, it's true that before we were saved, we could not stop sinning. But now that we are in Christ, all of that has been changed. What has been changed? I've been forgiven. I have some verses there that you can read later. I've been forgiven. What else has been changed? We now have the power of God's Spirit in us for effective and lasting change. How many of you know what 1 John 4, 4 says? The last part of it says what? Greater is he who was in us than he who was in the world. I can change. You can change. Sin's domination over us has been broken forever. Sin's domination over us has been broken forever. Let's quickly look at Romans chapter 6. Now, we're going to go through this the fastest I've ever been through, 14 verses in my life. You see, if you don't know, understand, and truly believe I was years and years living a life that first did not understand and know and secondly didn't really believe that sin's domination, not presence and activity, but domination or rule or captivity was broken in my life. I didn't know that I as a believer no longer have to give in to sin's temptation. I didn't know that. I just didn't know it. But God began to show me stuff. And that changed everything in my life. So in chapter, as we look at chapter 6, let's first look at chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased. See, law was given to show the sinfulness of sin and the activity of sin. So law was to show this is how much sinning you were doing. It's like turning on the light and seeing all the roaches there all of a sudden. You only saw one or two, but when you turn on the light, you saw there were hundreds of them all around you. It's not the light's fault. The light is just revealing what's already there, right? Sin does that. I mean, the law does that. It shows all the sinful roaches in our life. So when that happens, sin increases, not in actual activity, but at least in revelation. But look at this, where sin increases, what? Grace more abounds. Now, someone thinks, well, wait a minute. If grace is to abound in the midst of sin, let's keep sinning so grace can continue to abound. Well, that's what the thought is. So look at verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? See, in verse 20, the word abound. He's church. This didn't happen to you just two years ago. This happened at Calvary and in the resurrection. God gave it to you when you experienced two years ago. That's when you came to find out. Woo! Look what God has done. So when Christ came up out of the grave, he came up triumphant. And I and you were in him, triumphant. We know that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, might be made inoperative as to sin's control. What that verse says in chapter six, verse 6 is that our old body, the body that I live in now, this old hunk of flesh here, 
is now made inoperative to sin's ability to control. My old body is now made inoperative to sin's ability to control. It doesn't mean I won't sin. It simply means that my body no longer is at the beck and call of temptation and sin. Do you understand this? Does this communicate to you? Verse 6. Extremely important. For one who died has been set free from sin. Paul will just kind of tell you one more time. Let me tell you, the guy who's dead no longer is involved with sinful activity. <clears throat> now, we have died with Christ. We believe we shall also live with him. Remember the resurrection. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death's dominion has to do with sin's dominion. Remember, death came in because of sin. Now that sin has been killed is as to his dominion death no longer has dominion over me this old body's going to die but i'm coming back in a resurrection body are you i'm coming back for death for the death jesus died jesus died to sin once for all but the life he lives he now lives to god so you also must consider Look at that word. You must consider. You must reckon. You must look at and believe the truth of the word of God, whether you experience it or not. You must consider this, that yourselves, you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. And then he begins to give you commands. Therefore, because of this, don't keep sinning. Stop it. Well, that's easier said than done. It's going to be done when you begin to believe the truth. And sin comes to your door and you begin to say, you ain't coming in. I say to the enemy on regular occasions, I say this, you cannot make me sin. He can't do it. Satan cannot make me sin sin. Let's get some guts around here. Let's get some metal, spiritual metal in us. Let's begin to be grabbing the Word of God and taking stands against sin and Satan and temptation. Let's stop being the wimpy, noodle people of God and begin to be the warriors that God has made us to be in Christ. I don't mind telling him face to face. If he stood physically before me, I'd tell him the same thing. You cannot make me sin. Why? Because I'm so great? On me. Because greater is he who lives in me than he who lives in the world. I believe it. I experience it. It's mine, and I will continue with it. I'm not going to continue and finish this chapter, however. Now, what we need to do is believe that God has done this and cooperate with His Spirit to mortify sin. So let me try to finish up this whole chapter this way. And I apologize for not ending on time. Give me a few more moments, if you would. Anybody give me five minutes? Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five. We have three days and four minutes left. Sin is like the weeds in a garden. Remember, Chester talked about a garden. <clears throat> I repenting is God's grace in me. 
And when I see a weed coming up in the garden, I pull it up. When do I pull up the weed in the garden? When I have opportunity. You notice I didn't say when I see it. Because sometimes if you're a good gardener, you were doing the work. And I think Daniel can commiserate, I mean commiserate, cooperate with this or cooperate. is brings it forward. He says, by no means, how can we stop? It's okay to underline in your Bible. Look at the next. How can we, we who died to sin, we died to sin's arbitrary and complete control. We died to sin's arbitrary and complete control and domination and mastery. We, in Christ, died to sin. Now, what are you going to believe? You're going to believe what the Word of God says, or are you going to believe your experience and the lie of Satan? Which one are we going to believe? The Word of God or the lie of Satan? Which one shall we believe this morning? The lie or the truth? Which one? The truth. Yeah, but you don't know. The truth. Yeah, but you don't. Truth. It's hard. Truth. Truth. We died to sin. When I saw that, woo, it undid years of bad theology and doctrine in my life. And all of a sudden, it opened, God opened the floodgates of his grace to be able to, in my life, begin to overcome sin that I had never been able to overcome simply because I did not know this. So I know the truth today. What? I died to sin. How did that happen? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? How did I die to sin? When did I die to sin? I died to sin when Jesus died on the cross. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When did I die to sin? God, in his own mind and in eternal purpose, had put every single believer into his Son. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul wasn't there physically. He was there spiritually in the mind of God. So that when Jesus died, having paid the full price for my sin, I and you were in Christ, having our sins completely paid for and purged by the death of the Son of God. Amen. I was there. Were you? And when he died, I died. What did I die? I died to the principle of sin's control over me. May I say it again? How did I die? I died by, to the principle of sin's control over me. I died. I was buried when Christ was buried. That old sinful control and that old man who was constituted in sin, it died. I'm telling you, it died. Either it did die or it didn't die because it can't be half alive. I've never done a funeral 
when the person in the coffin is kind of moving a little bit, but we say at least, I think he's 95% dead, but if he opens his eyes, we ain't closing the lid, honey child. We got to deal with this thing. Either you're going to be dead or you're coming out of the coffin, but <laughs> we can't have it both ways. Come on, we want to live like this as believers. Well, I believe it, but in Christ, you dead to the power of sin. May I say it again? In Christ, what? You dead to the power of sin. You dead to the power of sin. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in death like his, ooh, listen to this. If we died with him, we're going to be raised with him. And when Jesus came forth out of that tomb, spiritually and in the heart and mind and the concept and the purpose of God, every one of us came forth yelling and screaming, we are back from the dead. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We are now new creatures in Christ. You and I just didn't understand it and get it until you were born again. That's when God gave it to you. But that's what happened then. Do you see this? Do you see what I'm trying to say? You're, you're dealing with bushes and whatever, and you see a weed over there. I don't believe you have to stop everything you're doing and run over to that weed. Sometimes the Holy Spirit wants you to complete something that he's doing, or he wants to complete something in you, and then deal with this issue. But the point is this. I used to look and try to figure out what I was doing in sinning. I used to, at the end of the day, now let me think what I did today, what I did today, whatever I did. I stopped all that. That's foolishness. And if you're doing it, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry to say it, but I don't want you to feel uh, upset about it. But it's foolishness. It's not God. Sin is revealed as the Holy Spirit gives conviction and revelation to see it. How many of you, as gardeners, wait for a weed to show up before you pull it out? How many? How many? How many of you as gardeners get the shovel and start digging up all the dirt in the garden because you're looking for a weed that hadn't shown up yet? Well, you see, you know, we, we laugh about that, but that's introspection. I'm going to dig in this thing, and I'm going to find out everything that's wrong with me. Sometimes we call that accountability in our covenant group. We're going to find out what's wrong with you today, son, and we're going to dig in you. And that is not what we're supposed to be doing. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin. You see that in John chapter 16. He is the one who's given to convict of sin. He will use you and me in the word and prayer and circumstance, etc., to bring conviction and revelation to bear as we may say something. But even as I may say something to you or you may say something to me about a particular activity, God is the one who must convict me and reveal to me that this is a weed. And what do I do? I pull it up. I deal with it. I deal with it in Christ. I deal with it by faith. I deal with it by repenting as pulling it up. And then, and I learned this several years ago, but it's also in your book. I learned that when I dig up an area of sin, having asked the Holy Spirit, why is this sin so repetitive in me? What's the root? Where's the pleasure in my flesh? Where is the misplaced pleasure? God will show you these things if you ask him. Once that thing is uprooted, then we come back and fill it. If there's a big old bush in your garden and Daniel rips it up because it ain't no good, 
He's not going to leave a hole there, hopefully. Hopefully, you'll say, could you plant a beautiful azalea in that same place and put something pretty there, right? So we replace sin with godly behavior, which he talks about toward the end of the chapter. So let me close this way. I encourage you to read and study out and reread and study out Romans chapter 6 especially the first 11 verses, the heart of the matter, especially verse 3, what? How shall we, and in the Greek he repeats himself, we, we who died to sin. The rest is an explication of the death. How did we die? In Christ, when he buried, remember? What happened? We were raised, when he was raised, so Okay, we died to sin. How can you change? Why can you change? Because we're new creatures in Christ. Because we're not under sin's dominion anymore. I, for one, am determined in the Holy Spirit to come against every single temptation in my life. I don't say I'm successful every time, but I am determined in it. And kill every single temptation and ask and allow and wait for the revelation of the Holy Spirit to show me other areas of sin so that sin in my life, the dominion of which has been destroyed no longer has as much activity in me to allow the planting of God's good green plants in me to grow unto his glorification as the gardener. I'm determined for me. Can we be determined together and let God have the glory in this? So his pleasure over our desire to want to experience his pleasure. So he gives us his pleasure because it's his pleasure to give us his pleasure. Next week we'll do chapters 7 and 8. Thank you.